This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, Everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the BBC Science Focus podcast. I'm Dan Bennett, the editor of BBC Science Focus magazine. In this episode, I'm speaking to Tom Chivers and David Chivers. Tom is a veteran science journalist and author, and David is a lecturer in economics at the University of Durham. As well as a surname, they both share a passion for statistics, or more precisely, for the way that numbers are used and presented in the media. Together, they've written an e-book, How to Read Numbers, a guide to statistics in the news and knowing when to trust them. Over the next hour, we talk about how to understand the confusing stats around health and risk, how to spot a suspicious claim when you see one, and how to think about the current concerns surrounding the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. I speak to Tom first, and I asked him whether it was a sheer coincidence that they had written this book at a time when the public, the government and the media have been obsessing over numbers more than ever before. I, uh, well, I tell you what, we've been trying to, we were trying to work out the other day what the specific story was that triggered us wanting to write this book. It it came from us in our Twitter DMs complaining about some news story or other with terrible numbers in it and just going, well, someone should write a book about how you can do better than this. And then realising that we were probably quite a good sort of pair to do that because, you know, he's an economist and I'm a journalist with some interest in numbers. But no, it was a coincidence that it happened just before the, um, just or just as the pandemic was cracking, it was sort of uh, appearing. I, I remember when I wrote the, or when we wrote the um, proposal, which I think must have been February last year or January or February mm-hmm. last year, uh, the, uh, it was, you know, the numbers were just sp- starting to spiral out of control, especially in China, I think it was starting to come across. And, uh, and the, um, uh, it just felt. I think the, the our agent uh, my, uh, suggested uh, before we sent the proposal across to the um, publishers. Look, you really need to mention some stuff about this. You know, this is going to be the biggest statistical story of the next <laughs> few weeks. We should probably mention something in the proposal. So we did, but it wasn't wasn't what we started out with. We started out with some story about um, uh, numbers of deaths from something or other in uh, a university, which we ended up cutting from the book itself altogether. So yeah, it was. I mean, from a 
purely sort of self-interested point of view, it was very well-timed, I think it's fair <laughs> to say. I think we're being a bit unfair there. So I think we could have just said we predicted the crisis. Yeah. It was going to happen. Yes, amazing forecasting. As uh, as, yeah, you know, exactly. as mentioned in chapter, has to, he has to go through his own chapter list, but <laughs> chapter 17, <laughs> in fact, yes. Um, and so obviously, uh, as we speak today, um, this, will, this will be going out next week, but as we speak today, there's a, there's a big, in fact, it's emblazoned on one of the front pages of one of the newspapers, a big statistic. Um, you know, everyone's talking about the risk of blood clots in the under 30s in regards to the uh, Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, now, it's, you know, it's understandably quite a, a scary topic and, and you know, um, quite a sensitive topic. But I'm just wondering, you know, given that you've spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff, uh, if you could give our listeners some advice on how to think about this story and this this. Um, this idea around the risk of vaccinations. Hmm. Uh, do you want to go first, Dave? Or? Yeah. So I think I think there are two things here, and the first one is it's understanding about what the evidence is surrounding blood clots and vaccines. Because even though the sort of regulators are suggesting there may be some link, how exactly do we know for certain that these vaccines are causing blood clots? And we actually we don't know that. Hmm. There are there is some evidence to suggest that there may be a link between the two, but how confident do we have to be before we inform people that there is some evidence? And that's something that's very difficult to portray. And something that we talk about in our book as well about what evidence means and, and how likely this would be. So that's one risk we need to be we need to sort of suggest that, it, that you need to take into account, which is that we don't know the evidence is there quite quite you know it's not quite for certain. The other thing, and that's the risk of the actual blood clot itself. Um, happening when you take the vaccine will depend quite largely on your age group. But how you actually process that risk is something that Tom and I have been discussing this this morning, actually. It's very difficult because these involve incredibly large numbers. I'm not very good at thinking in large numbers. And I, I often tell people that risk is a feeling. It's something that we interpret in a feeling sort of kind of way. And how exactly me as an individual is meant to process the risk of, say, a 1 in 100 chance or a one in 10,000 chance, or a one in a million, because to me, they just seem zero, or it's very difficult to comprehend, and how that how that makes you feel is very difficult. But the important thing to remember is that everything we do involves some level of risk, and everything we do in society is risky. Crossing the road, eating a sandwich, um, playing football, anything will come with a certain background risk, and it's, it's important to compare. And I think Tom's uh, written about that, so maybe... He could come in on that. Well, point. I can come in a bit. Um, we, one thing I was speak, speaking recently to uh, David Spiegelhalter, who I'm, uh, has just become one of the great celebrities of the um, of the pandemic. The uh, uh, Winton Professor of the Public Understanding of Risk at Cambridge University, a very great statistician, and he he said one way to look at it was that if you took um, Wembley Stadium and filled it with twenty year olds uh, and gave all of them the AstraZeneca jab, that at the current rate of um, COVID in the in the population, you'd expect about one of them to end up with, and uh, end up in the ITU in, in intensive treatment unit with COVID, and about one of them to end up in the intensive treatment unit with the um, uh, with the Oxford AstraZeneca jab. So you know, so because because and what he's saying is that actually COVID is very very not risky for uh, these you know for for young people under twenty under thirty under twenty, but uh, and so so actually the, the from an individual point of view the the um the risk is low whether you take the vaccine or not, 
I was talking about this with Dave earlier, though, and he pointed out that actually, again, like as he says, we're not very good at thinking in terms of these large numbers. And can you visualise how many people there are in in um, uh, in Wembley Stadium? Does that mean anything to you? I I, I don't know. I don't know. So, I mean, the the, the num- numbers that other people have been other numbers I've been trying to get hold of or trying to make sense of it. You know, this is it's roughly your risk of dying. Well, it, it, the given that not most people who have these clots then go on to survive, it's about, I think about one in four of them so far have tragically died. It works out as about your risk of dying, crossing the road in a given six month period. So if you, so, so these are, these are things that we do, you know, it's very comparable to just like the, the normal risks of background risks of being alive day to day. And so I think you can try and get these sort of contexts of risk across. I think that is a useful thing to do, but I mean, Sort of fundamentally, it is it is worth remembering that for for young people, COVID isn't very risky. It is actually is much much riskier for our old people. There's, there's the complication of long COVID, and you know the long the long term effects of uh, you know like fatigue and some sort of cognitive issues and, and muscle pain and so on. They they, they are real, but the, from the point of view of death or in, uh, acute disease, it is very low risk for individuals. And actually, when you talk about this risk of um, uh, severe illness from the disease versus severe illness from the uh, the vaccine in young people. While they might be balanced, it doesn't take into account the fact that you're, when you get vaccinated as a young person, what you're actually doing is to making doing it for society, protect you're doing it to protect people around you and the older people and the, who are at much higher risk. And and that, that feels a bit unfair to bring up because so much of this pandemic has been about young people sacrificing large chunks of their life to protect older people who, who are at greater risk and, and and i think you know and maybe it's unfair to look at it like that but i think this sort of starkly looking at the on the one hand you have this risk from the clot and on the one hand you have the risk from the from the disease that doesn't take into account the wider societal benefits of the vaccine and i i would still be very very keen if someone does get offered the Oxford AstraZeneca jab, be very, very keen to stress that they should take it both for their own sake and for societies. And while the for their own sake calculation gets less obvious at the lower end of the age range for the 20 to 30 somethings, there's still the benefits for society at large are enormous and should be, and um, we shouldn't lose sight of that. Mm. I think it's that's a very good point about, you know, uh, that underlines a lot of this book that that life is not without risk and uh, David's mm. or, you know that's always sort of the point he starts from is thinking about you know the the broader uh, the broader dangers at play. Um, so I just uh, want to go back to your book a, a bit then and um, and pick up on the the first sentence actually. Uh, mm. Which, which I thought was great, by the way. Um, many writers, you know, <laughs> probably uh, tortured themselves over the, over the first sentences. Um, numbers mm. are cold and unfeeling. Um, do you think that's why we're so drawn to them as as readers, journalists, politicians, um, when we try and persuade people or when we try and make points on Twitter? Um, is that what you think their power is? Um. I think so. I, I thought a lot about this um, actually as a line. I think when we when we were, we were suggesting this, because one of the things that's very difficult as um, someone who does a lot of numbers, like Tom and I sort of do, is thinking about how someone else would feel if they you know that so don't really like numbers. And I know lots of my friends and lots of people say I'm not a numbers person. Is quite is quite a sort of common feeling. And I think there's two reasons that we we sort of think about. And one is that people think they can't do the numbers, which we talk a bit about as well in the introduction. And another one is that they just don't like them. There's a sort of, 
I think it because it really just doesn't capture anything that we think as an individual. You know, if someone's to treat me as a number, I think I'd get quite upset because I'm an individual as a person, you know, if some, and we sort of have that sort of feeling. In fact, I often, when I think about that, um, sort of idea of thinking about numbers. I actually, in my mind, I think a lot about sort of World War One and sort of, you know, the sort of people going over the top and just treating people just as if they're just complete casualties. And it seems to me quite a, I don't know, it, it evokes something that seems quite wrong in my mind. The thing is, though, is that because numbers are so useful, and this is what we wanted to argue, and because we can then use them in a way that actually helps us treat people as if they weren't numbers, that if they, you know, we actually can care about them, that's why we need to sort of, sort of, um, that's why we need to use numbers, and that's why we need to, I think, um, have a different sort of view on them. So rather than sort of just thinking about them as treating people as numbers, we're using numbers to treat people as people, as themselves. I think that's sort of what we wanted to get across there. Um, I don't know if Tom had anything. To I, I, yeah, I do. Uh, so I, you, you're also talking about whether or not that's why people like them. And I feel like, I think a lot of people, a lot of the reasons why people do like them, you know, uh, mm. the one, uh, pe- why they get used a lot is because they have this veneer of truthiness, I think is the mm. word, isn't it? You know, uh, so you know, if, if some, some figure comes out, you know, um, child, you know, you, a politician says child poverty has gone down by X since this time or whatever, you know, and that sounds like a hard and fast, cold number that you can't, you can't really argue with. But what I, the other thing we really wanted to make clear with this book is that so much of about the numbers you use and the numbers you hear is about which ones you choose and and how you frame them. If if I mean, that that example of um, child poverty is one we mention in the uh, in a chapter on how you cherry pick numbers and if you if you happen to you know num- sometimes numbers go up and down right some years but their the economy is better whatever is you know so some things things just randomly change and some years child poverty is higher or lower than it is and if you say and if for example in 2010 child poverty happened to be really low and in child 2011 it happens to be really high and then you're in 2018 or 2020 looking back you say um, oh, I want to make it look like my, you know, I'm the leader of the opposition. I want to make it look like the government has done really badly. Uh, I can choose the year when child poverty was really low as my starting point and now choose and, and compare it to that child, child poverty is now and say, look, it's gone up. Whereas if I'm the leader of the government, I could start from the high, the, the, the year when it was really high and look at compare it to now and say, look, it's gone down. And which of these is right? Which is the accurate? Well, neither is true. Neither is, there is no right answer there. What you've done is, is chosen, you know, you 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 can you've chosen this sort of way of looking at it, which makes you look better than you than you than you know makes you look as good as possible. And what we're trying to do in in this book is sort of say, look, a lot of this is about how you frame it. There is no, there a lot of it is not. It's about choosing the angle you look at things from. And actually, sometimes these numbers aren't as sort of there's no, it's not that there's a right answer. And actually, you need to be better at sort of zooming out, putting it into context, and trying to understand how they can go wrong, how they can mislead, and how you can sort of stumble towards making them tell more truth, you know, more truthful stories. And so I just, so before, before we get onto some of the examples in the book, because there's a lot of, of them and they're, they're, they're brilliant. Um, that just made me wonder, you know, when I, when I read this book uh, and this, this, you know, is it's a feeling you get often in, in a really good science book, you sort of finish it and you think, why aren't they teaching this or they should be teaching this is that something that you 
you sort of feel should be sort of more widely taught in schools or university or you know is there a because um you know you at the end you even have a little um guide for journalists but this is this is far beyond journalists and politicians isn't it um yes i think i think the problem is is that when you are enthusiastic about something it's very easy to say we should do more something in school so i'm sure if we did an english thing on shakespeare they'll say shakespeare needs to be taught more than it is at school and Fortunately, I'm an economist, so I don't. I actually think statistics, although it's part of economics, should be taught more in schools than um, economics because it is essentially the foundations of science uh, to a lot of the state. A lot of science we do now involves statistics and numbers, and what we think about tr- truth is, is scientific. Mm. And I, I do feel that statistics is something that we use every day, even interpreting interpreting things like. Risk. So, I mean, I would like to see um, statistics being taught more in school. I mean, it is taught because I, I did it at A level um, as an optional thing, and it is taught in university. But I think it's something that we probably need to have a better handle on in society when we, you know, we're, we're hearing them all in the, in the news, and it's not something we really, I think, as a society, we're very good at. Whereas I think with other things that we do concentrate on, things like in English, like grammar and and all that sort of stuff, we actually do probably quite a lot of it um, and I think we you know we can actually understand words quite well um, in comparison to the numbers and, and I think we should be able to um, have the same level of understanding or at least a higher level of understanding that we do now in numbers as we do in words and I think that's something we, we sort of argued in the book is that you know if we think um, sort of literacy is important for democracy I mean we can't imagine a society that couldn't read participating in democracy, even though it did, it literally did exist a few hundred years ago, you know, it was a thing, um, then, you know, we have now a society that isn't very good at reading numbers. And that's where lots of information is given to us. And if we can't participate in that, it just seems, it seems sort of fundamentally wrong to me. Um, But I do think then this probably gets to the fact that it's sort of it's sort of slightly acceptable to not be very good at numbers. People would say, "Oh, you know, I'm not a numbers person. That's okay." But I'm, I'm sure if I made a spelling mistake, you know, people would absolutely people really get angry if I make spelling mistakes. But you know, if you make a math mistake, oh, that's okay because math is hard. And it's, uh, um, yeah, not. I heard sure. a load of people telling me off for saying for, for plugging the book by saying Dave and me have written a book, and they're like, "Oh, actually, it's Dave and I." And all the other. <laughs> <laughs> it's colloquial use. Right, yeah, it's, it's also quite funny because the meaning is very. No, no, and, and this, this is very strange. Dave and me, or Dave and I, it, it's completely obvious what you meant. No one's going to go, hmm, I really wonder if that's the case. Mm. But if we just had a probability, like, you know, like we say in the book, like, oh, there's a 20% increase in something, it's perfectly, you know, you'd be perfectly grammatically correct, but it gives you absolutely no information. It's entirely unclear what we're talking about. But that is acceptable, mm. whereas Dave and me is not acceptable. Mm. To me, I think I know where my priorities lie, really, in that. Yeah. But, um, Yes, no, I agree. And uh, I, uh, on the subject of should it, you know, should this stuff be taught? If if you're saying should every school child in Britain have to buy a copy of our book, then I say yes. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, I have we well, have had a couple of messages from uh, university teachers, university lecturers, and uh, from uh, school teachers saying, "Has anyone else been? You know, been, I've been started using this to teach in core maths, uh, and I was just thrilled about that because I think that's really, mm. as uh, you know, that's uh, that." That, the, the, firstly, that's a great endorsement of our book. Secondly, I do think. Uh, firstly, you know, also I do think it's like th- this is this is shows how numbers are relevant to our everyday life, right? Because we all read these things. We, it is not just about. You know, it, it's so easy. I remember at math thinking, when will I ever use quadratic equations or whatever? But actually, <laughs> if, if you if you read a if you read a news story saying. Um, 
red wine will make you, you know, give you, make you healthy or make you, you know, give you cancer, prevent cancer. Or if you read any, any of these things about the risks of crime and everything like that, that these are, we use these news stories to navigate the world. We sort of, we make decisions about the risks we face in the world every day, you know, literally down to crossing the road, buying a you know, what we eat, what we drink, whether, you know, um, the, whether we leave the house and whether we feel safe. And I think it's really important to be able to just put, to, uh, hopefully this book gives you the tools to be able to put those sort of numbers in context and not just hear this scary, if you if you have a child over the age of X, then your risk of something goes up by 33%. What does that mean if you don't know what the risk was? The first, you know, and so, so I, I, yes, I would love it if this stuff was taught. I would love it even more if we sold millions and millions of copies to um, school libraries, but that's, that's probably a separate thing. I, I think what's um, important though is that people who maybe haven't read the book probably think it's a lot about, you know, actual adding up or taking away of numbers or some kind of multiplication, mm. you know, usually doing it in your head. It is not about that. And that, that is really important because I think when we think about mathematics, a lot of the time we are thinking about adding up, taking away in the head, these type of compl- you know, complicated scenarios. Honestly, I can't remember the last time I've actually added something up in my head. I'm using a computer program all the time, statistics. These are more conceptual debates. If you're interested in debating or philosophy or arguments or anything about this, this is what we're talking about. And so how to read numbers and understand them is a lot of the time I'm spending on what is the right variable to choose? Mm. What is the right kind of thing we're doing? And these are arguments. These are sort of debates that we can have. And it's a real thing. It's not sort of like, okay, can you do 27 times 34 in your head? A computer can do that. I mean, it's great if you can do that in your head, (laughs) but it's not the most important thing when we're talking about um, you know, how to read numbers. Mm. So, you know, don't worry about how fast or how, how, you know, how fast you are calculating stuff in your head. It's more important to sort of, you know, look at the actual arguments that, um, that these sort of numbers are making and whether you can do that. Mm. Yeah, this is, this is exactly, this is really relevant to the thing we were talking about earlier on about the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine and blood clots. Because, I mean, I, um, first, first thing I wrote about it a few weeks ago, I was, talking, I, was I looked at the, the, Back, the, the background rate of blood clots in the in the in society, and you know, just in a, if you give eighteen million people whatever, if you just take eighteen million people, what number of them will have these sort of clots in a given period anyway? And I, I was thinking, well, that's is, is that the right base rate that I should be comparing it to, or should I be comparing it to as I've decided would have, as we now realise later on is a better comparison? Should be comparing it to the right rate of oh god uh, cerebral venous venous sinus sinus thrombosis or and or uh, and then actually as it turns out that thank you very much um <laughs> there, and then as it turns out there is it's actually a more complicated thing than that still it is a, a particular and rather rare combination of that and something called um thrombo- thrombocytopenia or low, low plate accounts and that is so what is the correct you know if we're comparing the risk should we what's our base rate that we should be comparing it to and that is not a question of being able to add up numbers it is a question of wisely choosing the correct uh, base rate to be comparing it to what how to put it into context and yes it, and i can you can do any multiplication or addition problem you want in the search bar of your of your browser it takes five seconds and it's not difficult and you don't need you don't even need a calculator you don't need any sort of skill what you need is a sort of the mindset of thinking oh right that's, that sounds like a big number but is it a big number how do we how do we find it out what context do we put it into to make it to establish the, the how seriously I should take it, and yes, it's a it's a philosophical or sort of well, yeah, a philosophical discussion as much as it is a numbers one. Mm. Yeah, it certainly struck me that uh, you know, especially for us as journalists, that tools for sort of critical thinking in 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 the world and the many problems we face and how much data there is 
that we can pull up on any given problem um, just just could be immensely valuable. Um, so so you so throughout the book you sort of outline um, you know different effectively uh, in a sense red flags things to spot or or ways of thinking about problems um, uh, when it comes to statistics and, and claims or uh, you know even even reports made of studies. Um, and I was curious, you know, I was a little bit worried. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll be honest, I was nervous. I was like, am I going to see science focus in it? Um, but, you know, because it is so tricky and it is so treacherous. Um, but I wondered how how hard did you find it to find these examples? Was it worryingly easy or um, did you have to do some digging? Uh, it's not hard to find examples. I mean, that I... I suppose it's not. It's partly it's not hard to find examples because I can just go through my back, you know, my my back catalogue of times I've complained about people getting the numbers wrong in the past. It was you know, <laughs> felt a bit like doing a greatest hits album, to be honest. Um, but the uh, <laughs> but the um, uh, yeah, I mean, the the thing is, right? I I actually I am a journalist now. I've been a journalist for oh god, I don't want to think about it. Thirteen, fourteen years, whatever. And I um and I genuinely have a high opinion of journalists as people. I think they are, uh, I think we are generally well-intentioned. We're generally clever, generally sort of you know, trying to do best, trying to do good in the world. But generally speaking, we are better with words than we are with numbers. And that is, you know, we are not, uh, as a as a profession, journalists are not especially numerate. And I don't, that's not a huge criticism. It's, you know, it, it, any more than it would be a criticism of mathematicians to say that they're not especially uh, literate. You know, it's, that's that's the skill set that gets tra- uh, trained. And I, um, so I, I think that has led to, means that journalists are susceptible to falling into these sort of pit hole, pit, pitfalls when you see, when you see a thing saying um, uh, something puts your risk, you know, your, your risk of, uh, uh, bacon, so re- eating bacon every day raises raises your risk of a particular kind of cancer by twenty percent. That sounds really bad, and, and oh, do that, that's your headline: twenty percent risk. Oh, but then, and it doesn't occur to journalists because they haven't had this sort of way of thinking drilled into them. Just say, wait, wait, wait. Actually, I should just—that's a red flag. I should twenty percent more than what? You know, what's what's my what's my starting point? Where do I go from there? And I think that is something that I would love journalists to get better at but at the moment i think it is a um it is uh it is a common problem and, and there's also there's another issue which we will which we discussed in the book is that there's an incentive problem for journalists which is that we we do want to improve the world and help everyone you know help everyone understand the world and generally you know we, we see journalism as public service but it is also a business and you are trying to sell papers or get people to watch your news story or listen to your podcast or whatever and if you go around constantly saying uh, no one died of a plane crash in a plane <laughs> crash today. Then you won't sell any papers. You, you you are incentivized to find the exciting things, the dramatic things, the shocking, startling, surprising things. And if that is, uh, you know, and and the thing is that, that quite often the surprising things will be that will not always be the ones that are best for navigating the world. I mean, it, like, like like that, a twenty percent raise in cancer risk sounds much more dangerous than I think. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it works out. There's about a one in. 90 chance that will actually affect you when you look at the you know when, mm. it, it's it's not nothing but it's it's not <clears throat> it's not a big deal it, it's not it's not as big a deal as it sounds like. so so when you so you are incentivized as a journalist to make it sound as dramatic as you can so that you sell more papers and journalists try not do sometimes try not to do that but there is there as well as this sort of not the sort of 
not na- naturally not being brilliant at numbers, there is also a sort of enemy action problem that you are pushed into doing the most uh, dramatic and uh, sometimes misleading versions of stories or versions of numbers that you can find. And I think I think that incentive. So it's not always a journalist's fault. Is other things. It can mm. also be speaking in an academic and academics' fault. We have our own incentivization problems with. Um, trying to, you know, this whole publish or perish idea, the fact that we are, if anything, and academia is is all about trying to publish things that are, um, you know, usually sort of startling, just like you would in news. Oh, this is an interesting event. And the problem with that is that you can lead to publication bias. So we can, um, and that's something we talk about in, in, our, in our book, this sort of idea that, um, you know, we have certain effects that may be more prominent, whereas actually we wouldn't we wouldn't see um, we would see more of a sort of balancing out of sort of some negative and positive effects. Um, not sure we did a good job of explaining publication bias there, <laughs> but um, the, the idea though is that um, I think it is a problem, um, and I think that you know, and as also even incentivizing to really talk to the media is not massive. You know, I think in some countries it's slightly different. But, you know, there's not huge incentives, at least for promotional things in academia to, mm. um, you know, talk about the work compared to, say, just publishing in a, a journal that, you know, say two or three people read um, it is, would be seen as quite a big accomplishment compared to, say, you know, sort of talking to the nation or explaining it. It's, mm. um, it's quite tricky. The, um, there's a thing we talk about in the book is the, is the, re- the replication crisis. I'm sure you've discussed mm. that on this podcast before, but, you know, uh, that's exactly it, that a lot of a lot of scientists who themselves as it turned out weren't uh, were either not very good at statistics or deliberately using statistics as dark arts almost and they and they they found that they could if that you could get essentially a, a noisy data set that doesn't say anything in particular and chop it up in lots of different ways until you find something that looks like it's real and then you can say look i found this i found that if you eat uh, that men eat twice as much pizza when they're in front of women to impress them or something like that. Then you get that published in a, in a journal and uh, everyone goes, ooh, very exciting. And then when someone goes back more carefully and checks, they will know that's, that, that doesn't stand up. The data isn't there. Yeah, and, but you've got your, you know, you've, you've got your citation, you've, you've got your publication, you've got your citation, you got to get, get cited, you get tenure as a professor, you know, you're, you're incentivized to do these things. And then, so, and then, so this is exactly what, I'm, what we're talking about here. So you're incentivized as a scientist to push these, uh, dramatic findings, even if they're not real, and then as a journalist, you're incentivized to cherry pick the most exciting of them and put them in a newspaper. So, by the time a statistic makes it into the newspapers or into the news, it has already gone through two filters of excitingness, which may well mean that it is not actually true by the time it gets to you. And I think that's that's a a, re- a real problem. And I, mm. it's it's a lot to ask journalists to say you should be able to check the work of scientists to make sure it's you know like because the scientists can't do it in the one i just mentioned about the the pizza thing that turned that that was uncovered by some really um sophisticated data sleuthing uh also one really badly judged blog post by the guy who did it and then also um some proper investigative journalism by um buzzfeed stephanie lee who you know got leaked emails and all good old-fashioned investigative journalism to uncover those bad statistical practice going on the idea that i you know that you could do it as a the science correspondent of i don't know the uh, the independent or the times or something like that and do it who's right you know writing two or three science stories in a day you haven't just haven't got they haven't got the time or the bandwidth to go and go through the stats like that so it's, it's a lot to ask journalists to be better at that mm. sort of thing I mean, I, I did have a colleague uh, once upon a time who was a uh, sort of their their degree. I'm probably going to butcher this now. I think it was in mathematical physics, 
Um, mm. And even you know they when they when they were starting out they did not hurt they didn't know what a p value was which is you know essentially we're talking about a, what what mm. is the, the, the statistical significance um, which is probably best left for another time but mm. of this result and so it, it is very hard for both you know journalists and um, the public to sort of often navigate this but I guess that's what the book's for right. Mm. Yeah, I will. I will say about statistical significance. It is that uh, one of the things we go on about a lot in the book. I'd be lovely to have time to explain it, but you may be right. But no, I, go, I would just. Go, I, would, go. I would love. I would love people to take away from from the, from this in the book that the word statistical significance does not in any way imply actual significance, and uh, just means that it might not that it probably is. Uh, well, that it may not be not real or something like that. I'll, I'll let Dave explain. I think. It I think the idea with and. Statistical significance is people when they think of significance is effect size, right? That's a significant binding you've got there, like a really important big thing, right? <laughs> but actually, when we it, probably better to think of it as detectable. So bacon is a really good example. Bacon and cancer is statistically significant result that it will you know increase your chances of getting cancer. So if you go, oh wow, statistically it's a significant, sounds scientific. I've got to you know maybe I don't eat bacon now. But then what if we said that the effect size of that is incredibly small? Like, in other words, every, for every you know, piece of bacon you eat, it increases your um, chances of cancer by a negligible amount. Saying that's significant is a bit, I think that's a bit difficult in how we would you think of it as language. Now, there may be a link, but the effect size is so small, I think saying statistically significant is very difficult. Mm-hmm. But I think statistical significance, what it uh, sort of generally people get confused about is that it, it, they think it's sort of a probability, which it kind of is, but it is more to do with, and you can't really talk about this without talking about hypothesis testing. You're doing a test about I mean, the world. T- t- do, do tell us. Yeah. Tell us what statistical significance is. Good. All right, okay. I'll see if this one works over the radio, shall we? Um, all right, so <laughs> if you... Uh, let, let's, let's imagine you've got a bunch of um, a bunch of dice and you want to see whether they are loaded okay um so you uh, dave stop me jump jump in if i'm getting this wrong because i'm trying to do it from memory well, but yeah, let's say it's a bit biased it no, it's, it's not like if you get a one in if you roll a six it might actually not be you might have got somebody who's trying to play a trick on you and it's say more or less likely to roll a six yeah so so if, so so you're trying to test whether this dice is, is loaded if you roll it roll it once and you get a six does that mean it's biased? No, because you could have rolled a six by accident. You just you know, anyway, even if it wasn't. If you roll a hundred sixes in a row, it'd be very unlikely that that, that would happen on an unbiased dice. Right? That, that was just you, you're reaching into the just you know, into the uh, greater you know small more, longer odds than the number of atoms in the universe or something mad like that. So <clears throat> if you uh, so, so but at no point can you actually say this dice is definitely loaded. You could always roll one more six. The p value, the, the p value is the likelihood of seeing that result on an unbiased dice. You see what I mean? So if you roll three sixes in a row, that's uh, one in two hundred and sixteen chance of seeing that on a, on a on a fair dice. So your p value is one divided by two hundred and sixteen, um, or about zero point. Oh, I can't figure. I don't know what that'd be. Not point normal. Uh, um, but small, the, uh, I think the crucial thing. Very small. Yeah, the yes. crucial thing here is to think about the fact that you. It's sort of. It is an experiment, like a thought experiment. It's mm. like a. It's like a philosophical experiment. What would this? What would we expect to happen if this dice was unbiased? And I think that's the way to think about it. When mm. we think about p values, what would we expect to happen? So. 
how likely would it be if the dice wasn't unbiased for us to roll 106s in a row? And we'd say that's extremely unlikely. Mm. And what we'll do is we'll set a tolerance level beforehand of when we think, and this is where we get the P equals 0.05 from, that's our tolerance level, how tolerant we are to say, well, if it's below that level, if that, that risk, if that probability is so low, then we'll say, yes, it probably is the fact that it's very unlikely to hire, um, happen in this world because, you know, in this, um, is it really likely that we have, say, 100 sixes with, um, in our, um, with an unbiased dice? Well, probably not. So it's this idea that um, it is a thought experiment. And I think that's what probably people forget when they think about uh, statistical significance. And one ha- thing that happens a lot with, um, with uh, journals, which is this idea of p-hacking, is that people forget that it is this experiment. So they'll just keep on rerunning this thing lots of times, mm. forgetting that, and then suddenly you'll just have this random result that, oh, wow, I've got this, I think I've got statistical significance. <laughs> but what you've actually done is run this thing so many times that by chance you've got this random result. Yeah. Because there is always a chance, I know this is going to be, rid- there is always a chance that you do get 106s in a row. Okay, maybe not 106s, but there is always a chance that this thing does happen. And that's how it works in medicine. Mm-hmm. That's exactly how we We'll be thinking about the problem with the blood clots that we um, thought earlier. How many, for example, if we didn't see a link between vaccines and blood clots, how many blood clots would we expect in the general population? So assuming that, that there's no link, what's the likelihood of the amount of times we get people with um, blood clots? And then we might be seeing now, as we have evidence, that there is some. Mm-hmm. And so we're doing this, and it's, it's difficult because it's low. there's low values, probability, and there's all mm-hmm. sorts of other things going on here. But that thought experiment is essentially what we think of as scientific proof. And I think people obviously think about carbop and falsification, but actually a lot of the time it's not. It's always a case that something could possibly be true. We can't prove forever that gravity always exists. We just think it's extremely highly likely it does because every time I've done it, I, I see this thing falling down. And it's all about likelihood and probability. And I think that's the reason why, you know, going back to everything we've said here, science is so important in schools because this is what we think of as scientific proof. It's not the theory necessarily. And I think this is such an extremely important thing for people to know and, and, and to understand. Absolutely. I think that's that's a, you've done a great job there uh, of explaining that. And I think certainly in, in the book as well, you even use caps, Tom, <laughs> to, to make your point. Um, it's extremely it's, important. Yes, it is. And, it's, you know, I think we probably at Science Focus were a little, maybe a little bit guilty of not, you know, going into that too much because it does, you know, if you have to explain it every time you mention a discovery, it's no. a bit laborious, but it but yeah. it is it is fundamental. Um, so I want to just move on to another value um but i think it's interesting because again it's something we're we've all been talking about for the last year and that is r um mm-hmm. in relation to the the reproductibility of the of covid and and we've been seeing you know r values shown all the time i think it, I'd, I'd like to just talk about that because i think it's a good example of how there's in that example there's no sort of intention to mislead there's no sort of misrepresentation necessarily of numbers but even then you know uh, a number can hide another meaning or a deeper meaning um, especially when it's a simple single number that's quite neat and quite tidy like ours you know so we're we're below one so everything's okay and um, mm. I wonder if uh, if you could sort of talk us through that example of how the R rate um, can sometimes sort of hide important detail uh, in, in, in the, the sort of reporting and the, the communication of what's going on with COVID. 
All right. Uh, shall I? Shall I go? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, so there was this. There was. Uh, it was just. A, it was a really interesting thing that happened in I think May or so of last year. Um, that uh, the um, jo- John Edmonds is it the um, uh, the epidemiologist who's I think he's on stage said look the um, he he said he told the the science and technology committee that the our value, their estimates, the R value had gone up. And this was in the depths of lockdown, and that sounded awful, right? And so, of course, the next day, you know, R value's gone back up, might be as high as one, the newspapers all over the place. But the, if you paid a bit of attention to what he was talking, what, what he'd said, he it was a bit more complicated than that. That actually, he was treating it as though there were two, um, two epidemics, Going on, uh, one in the in the uh, the wider community, you know, just sort of among all of us, and one of us in the um, in sort of care homes and hospitals. And in care homes and hospitals, the R value was a bit higher than it is in the um, <clears throat> society at large. It was spreading more easily in care homes and hospitals because they're more cramped environments. Um, but what would what was happening in both of these? Uh, uh, both of these environments was that the R value had, was coming down. The number of cases was going down, and the number of uh, and, and the, the likelihood of it spreading was coming down in both of them. But because it was coming down faster in the wider community um, than it was in hospitals and care homes, it meant that even though both of these individual places, these individual epidemics were getting were slowing down and getting smaller, the the slightly the the care home epidemics was taking up more of the average. It was becoming a bigger part of the average, and therefore. The average, when you look at the, both of them together, was going up. It was this weird. It's this weird counterintuitive thing called Simpson's paradox. That even though the numbers in, if, when you get the, uh, a big data set and divide it up, even though and the, the smaller bits, the uh, the numbers can be going one way. When you add them together, it can look like the average is going the other. You can see this in some really interesting uh, things. Uh, what was there was a marvelous example that we've, um, yeah, the, the for example in. in uh, if the if your median wage is go, the, the, in America, the median wage for all of pop, society was going up. But if you broke it down to um, uh, people who'd gone to university, people who hadn't gone to university, people who'd gone to high school, people who hadn't finished high school, um, each of the the median wage for each of those four segments was going down, even while the, the society as a whole was going up. And that was because more people were moving into the higher groups, so more people were going to university, more people were finishing um, high school, and so. You, so, so it became this really complicated thing that even though the overall number is going one way, it, when you look at the subgroups, it goes another. And th- that this was a really interesting thing because, like, what is the what is the what is the correct way of looking at it? You know, what is in if you if you if in the median wage example, if you are a person with uh, a, no college degree, then you're then you likely that your your wage has gone down over that period. But if you're an American, you're uh, as a whole, it's likely that you're um. Uh, your wage has gone up. What is the correct way of telling that story? And I, I think, in the case of the R value, at least, there is you know you might you might only you might it might be important to know that there's that, that to treat it as one as one big epidemic, or it might be important to look at the subgroups. The only honest thing you can do is say, look, this paradox is happening. This this complicated uh, story with the story with the numbers is going on, and we need to sort of express that and let the readers understand there's more to it than a simple number going up and down. And that, um, uh, and Dave, if you want to add something. I, I find I find the Simpsons paradox extremely. I mean, like if, you, if you're sort of slightly confused about how this can happen, uh, it's, don't worry. I still find it very difficult. <laughs> it's actually when you see it written down or you see a sort of page. We've got mm. a nice table of mm. it in the book, which is sort of 
advertisement the advertisement to buy the book mm. it's actually oh okay that makes sense now it's actually a lot to do with how the group sizes change and then it then you can see how it happens um mm. but i think just so one interesting point about the r number which i always felt was so so difficult especially because it's just a number you see 1.1 or 1.2 i'm used to dealing with um sort of compound growth exponential growth and i find it that people it was very difficult is to know what's the big deal about 1.2 or 1.3 or 1.4 do they they don't really seem like they're that bigger deal right mm. but when actually you write it down and i, I suggest you do this if, you, if you're, <laughs> you're so inclined if you're not really convinced it's, it's just to see it once and, and literally just sort of times you know take a number say 10 and times it by one point and see how quickly it grows and you'll be surprised that small very small difference like 1.1 to 1.3 how quickly it just completely gets out of hand and i think this is, goes back to this idea of what's in our experience which i think is important we don't it, it's unless we maybe see something like starting a fire and suddenly it sort of starts small and then suddenly it completely you know completely takes off we have very little experience of compound growth mm. seeing it in in our, in our lives and i think that's why it's so hard just to see from a number how you know how can such a small difference really make them um, you know this sort of big impact and how scary that is mm. and i think that was something at the time people weren't weren't probably didn't really have a good grasp of mm. i will say though it is astonishing well i think it is i would love to do some research into this or something because i i bet if if you'd asked the british population 14 months ago or certainly 18 months ago what is the r value i don't i i would bet that one person in a hundred could answer it you know like professional epidemiologists statisticians uh you know that that sort of thing uh, i couldn't have done until i read a book about uh, until i read adam kacharsky's book in about in about january last year when this was all kicking off i think i don't think i'd have been able to um tell you what it was and now I'd, if you did it again and uh, i know i'm just making up numbers here but I, I would be amazed if much less than half of people could you know couldn't tell you know, well, yeah, we're, we're able to tell you. I think it's now very much part of our common parlance. I think there's been... I mean, give you some definition, but yeah, that was exactly. accurate. I think you probably know um, greater than one bad, less than one <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, maybe. But I, I, think, I, think they, I think they probably know that it's to do with the number of people that a person, uh, uh, you know, the, the number of people infected yeah. by the average person. Maybe maybe half is optimistic, but I do think it's been, it has been, the pandemic has been a marvellous education in how people can get the hang of this stuff. Ooh. To, to, a, to a, a reasonable degree, no, they're not all going to be, you know, Professor, Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter, but they're, 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 <laughs> they can they can get it to the degree where they can make use of it in their lives when they have to, mm. and you know, I think that is there's been somewhat heartening. I, I may be totally wrong, maybe no one has a clue what they're talking about, but I I, um, I, I think that I mean, you cer- certainly when you watch the the um, uh, the political journalists and people who've been thrown into having to deal with this stuff. Mm. I, I it's, been, it's been fashionable to sort of say they've got it terribly wrong, but I, I feel like going from a standing start, they've got they've done a pretty decent job of having to you know go from using rarely using numbers to do more than like look at how many votes they've got in the House of Commons to now actually working out yeah. um, R values and things. I think I think it's I been a real education. It. I wonder if that's because maybe ours, it doesn't really have anything behind it. It just says R, so you have to learn the definition where herd immunity, mm. you're going to say that, what that means. I think probably people would make more mistakes than that. You may be right. Um, and I talk about that a lot because it's a bit like statistical <laughs> significance. Yeah. It's sort of a misleading word that you think, oh, I've, I've, I know what this means now, and then you sort of go off that <laughs> yeah. very technical definition. I think, I think um, it would be fascinating, wouldn't it? Because I suppose there's a bit, a bit of both tied into that, isn't there? So Because a lot of this is not intuitive. I mean, it's as far from intuitive with, with, with you know, for example, the um, the paradox that we just sort of talked about. But then I suppose 
in the last year we've we've had we have had a very real example of what happens when r goes from you know mm. 0.9 mm. to 1.1 we've suddenly quickly seen these fluctuating numbers where very quickly mm. or suddenly not inter- you know you're not following the news anymore because it's dwindling and then the sunny oh god we, we all have to be inside everything's you know terrible yeah. so it, it, yeah it would be a fascinating thing to see how people understand these sorts of things and how you know how much of the science communication got through and, and made a difference yeah it, um, was a, it was a thing that sorry i, I jumped in there but i was just no, saying, no, it was a thing that, like, I, i've been I've, I've been asked a lot uh they uh they um when I, uh, you know, just brush, brush a bit of dust on my shoulder, when I won the Royal Statistical Society Statistical Excellence in Journalism Award <laughs> only a few months ago, uh, the uh, the one of the things they, they you had to write a little thing afterwards and they uh, sort of you know about about the uh, about it all and they said, do you think this last year has been a um people has been an education for people and and I had to say like you know as a someone who likes to take numbers seriously, I don't know, I haven't done any surveys on this, I would love. It if someone did, but my 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 fairly confident guess is that there has been a real improvement in understanding uh, it, the the relevant numbers, things like infection fatality rates, things like R, things like you know, they're just a, a much larger percentage of the population could talk reasonably knowledgeably about these things than they mm. could have done before. But sorry, I interrupted you. Do carry yeah. on. And now I'm thinking how you go about looking at that, and I'm like, <laughs> well, we don't have a countdown. Yeah. Like, <laughs> anyway, well, I mean. No, I mean, I, that, that, I think it's fascinating because I think as well, um, before I, I put this back on the rails, um, I would be fascinated to see how, where the behaviour changes as we return to, in inverted quotes, normal in terms of, you know, just simple things like how disease spreads. Will we shake hands? Will we keep masks on in, in public transport? Will we, you know, now that people Work have this, home. Exactly, this intimate knowledge of how disease spreads and what the risks are and etc i wonder if um that will change but hmm. anyway to get to get to get back to uh statistics uh that we know about not the ones that we haven't found out yet um hmm. i just want to ask about a couple more um, before we wrap up uh another one uh not to keep it on coronavirus but it's, it's so pressing i suppose is how um i enjoyed it's, a, it's a, one of my favorite is uh good hearts law and there's some great comics if you Google Good Hearts Law about this by uh, KTD and others um, like it. Um, can you could you tell the, the listeners sort of how that played out in the pandemic a little bit and and what 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 it is? Yep, sure. Um, okay, so Good Hearts Law is this very dry sounding but incredibly profound thing. I think, which is it, it's it, the 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 line is uh, when a measure becomes a target it ceases to be a good measure um and what that means is if you you know we we, we use numbers we use target uh, metrics measures to to measure what is going on in the world around us you know is we want to know how's our education system doing so we measure uh, how many children get five a star to c grades at gcse or we want to know how our hospital system is doing so we say you know what's the survival rate of uh people 30 days after they are uh, um, you know, uh, uh, allowed out of hospital. Um, and that's really good and useful. But then if you take that number and say, right, this obviously correlates with how good things are. So we, we think, okay, so we, we look at, we look at education and we say, oh, so children who get more, fi- more, uh, a, a C, they start to C grades tend to do better in life. Therefore, if we push the number of children who get A star to C grades up, 
more children will do better in life. So that will be our target. We will tell schools, if you don't get 50% of your children having 5A stars to see uh, GCSEs, then you will be punished and you'll be rewarded if you do. You know, head teachers will lose their jobs or you'll be put in special measures if it doesn't happen, that sort of thing. Um, and then, of course, what happens is that measure becomes a target and so it ceases to become a good it ceases to be a good measure so then you'll get things like um teachers will teach the test or as genuinely did happen they uh, they concentrated on um the children on the cd bound grade boundary so they're pushing children who are in d up to c and neglected everyone else because they are they're either going to fail or they're going to get the c to b or a whatever so that is so, so the, the way of pushing up this arbitrary metric is to do it concentrate on those children hugely it pushes up your metric but it doesn't particularly improve the thing you actually care about which is the sort of flourishing of all children and the, the green you know, and the whole grade pyramid and what happened in covid which uh, was yeah i i was uh kind of weirdly proud of myself about this because it was um uh, but, uh, and again uh April, I think, last year, Matt Hancock declared that they were going to reach 100,000 tests by the end of April. I think I think I'm, I think I've got my numbers and dates right there. Oh, and I right. immediately thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're giving yourself a metric there, you're going to take yourself a target, <laughs> you know. Um, and uh, this is going to be a bit of a hotbed for Goodhart's Law. And um, lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. Uh, the um, they started uh, counting uh, antibody tests as COVID tests, even though that wasn't what we were using them, you know, as, as PCR tests, as that because that wasn't what we were doing. They they started. Uh, Matt Hancock was sending out emails to uh, all the um, the Tory uh, mailing lists saying, "Please go and get tested so that we can get our numbers up." There was um, uh, they they started counting tests that had been just been sent out in the post rather than actually taken as taken. So you know, and then they started counting tests that had been. So if if, you, if someone did a test that didn't work and they were tested again, that counted as two tests. And by doing all these things, it got it up to a hundred thousand. And you know, this, I'm not saying this was was a bad thing. They did they did get the, the testing regime got up really quickly and was impressive. But they they started what we actually cared about was the number of people who needed a test and were able to get one. And what mm. we didn't care about was whether a, exactly one hundred thousand people, you know, one hundred thousand one or nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine. That doesn't matter. The number on the thing was unimportant. The important and and, and the Goodhart's law nature of it meant that, of course, once we set this target, it was going to push us to getting these numbers as high as they possibly could. I think um, what's interesting about that is, is Goodhart's law is just so applicable in so many things. In fact, we've discussed a couple. One is, you know, would you say it's a good idea for a journalist to look at the amount of clicks on their on their article. Now you could say that's a good thing because it would incentivize some behavior to make sure they care about, you know, they maybe say the importance of their journalism, but also we could also say there's some negative behavior that would go in, maybe more sensationalist. Same with academics and publishing, the idea that mm. maybe it incentivizes me to be more ambitious and work harder, or maybe it just incentivizes me to cheat. And I think what's really important is not, I don't think it should be that we should not necessarily set targets. They can they can be a good thing, right? Say we should aim for this. I think saying that we should aim for something is okay. The problem then is that then if that becomes the only way you judge something, that's where you get into trouble. If you're then saying, look, we're only only judges by the success of the hundred thousand, because that then that measure has become something that we can't objectively say this is what's going on with the vaccine. And I think it's important because I'm sure many of you listening will have this in your daily lives. It, it happens all the time. And I think what's important is not to lose sight of what you are trying to achieve. 
And this is why I think people dislike numbers so much because, you know, as when you get things like bosses or whatever looking at why haven't you done this, you know, so many things, and you get these numbers and people are trying to sort of show that as evidence or maybe even giving you that as a target, I think that really leads to something that is, is bad. It's a bad use of numbers. I think one of the things to do is when you get a number, rather than saying necessarily, this is what this thing says, this is what this shows, Think, why, did it, why is it showing this? And think of all the possible reasons, not just the good, it can be the bad. So that's probably a better way of thinking about numbers rather than just saying, this immediately means you're rubbish at journalism, Tom, because you didn't get a thousand million clicks or whatever. <laughs> I always get a thousand million clicks. That, you know, <laughs> is that something else? And I think if you're too quick to jump to conclusions, you're not really getting, um, you're get, getting really the most use out of the data. Mm, I am, um, funnily enough, I did a Another thing, another uh, thing with the BBC last year, and uh, speaking to a, a um, an educationalist and sports fan, Daisy Christodoulou, who um, who, who who mentioned who she was the late, uh, woman who mentioned to me the um, the uh, C, D and C grade boundary thing, but she also said yeah. you can see Goodhart's law in a really interesting way in sports that like you have um, you have in, for example, in football you have a problem like the game doesn't flow well because someone keep standing you're just goal hanging right so you so you try and introduce a rule to stop someone goal hanging you introduce the offside rule to say okay you're not supposed to um stand past this point on the pit you know part you know past where the last defender is and like that and then of course that becomes part of the game you're the manipulating this new offside rule becomes part of the game and then yeah and then but oh so then lots of goals that would otherwise be good get ruled, ruled off you get var looking at the uh, someone's armpit being offside by half a millimeter and all this sort of stuff and that and that but that's you know that's not really what the rule introduced to care about if someone is a quarter of a millimeter offside it's you care about the flow of the game and the you know the, so but anytime you introduce these new rules they they, they become, you set these new targets you set these new metrics and and that and that makes them useless for the thing you're originally trying to do uh, i think it's uh, i really think that what goodhart's law is this one of these things that when you see when you've had it explained to you you start seeing it <laughs> everywhere, just everywhere. It just becomes this. I mean, honestly, my my last book was about um, how AI could go wrong in dangerous ways, and basically, I, I realized <laughs> I could have written a lot. A large part of the book was like Goodhart's law, but more so. You know, like if you tell a, tell a computer to do something to like build, you know, to cure cancer or make paper clips or something like that, you have to be damn sure that it's going to actually do the thing you want it to do and not just fulfill the metric mm-hmm. that you've set for it, because that's where it goes disastrously wrong. I think Goodhart's Law is a, a really profound and fascinating thing that, uh, honestly, once, once you've seen it, you can't stop seeing it everywhere. <laughs> um, so then finally, um, I just wanted to sort of end on, a, on, on an upbeat note, um, because maybe at points in this podcast or maybe in the book you might think oh god can i can i trust anything can i is anything true um but i suspect you might have you know the view that actually or a different view to that but um what do you think can we can we trust anything anymore or is it just about the nature of the world as it is now um, I think this is something, again, it's a worry. It's an action for us that we are worried about bad behavior, that suddenly, you know, you see, you read everything in this book and you say, everything is just completely nonsense. So I can't trust anything. And I think it's completely reasonable thing to do. I really hope that people don't do that when, and I, and I would implore them not to. We're obviously highlighting certain events where things do go wrong. Okay, and I think it's more about how to interpret when you see things in the world, how to interpret that. And 
I do believe quite strongly that numbers are extremely important and can help us get to what we think is the truth or something like along those lines. And even if you have stuff in the media that's not quite true, it doesn't mean we can't learn something from that. You know, a lot of the times when I when I see something, I think, say, for example, oh, there's sa- sampling bias here, even on Twitter. It doesn't mean I can't learn something from that thing. It might be that just that's a good exact a good representation of Twitter. Mm-hmm. It just it's maybe a bad representation of the population as a whole. But I might be able to learn something from that. So it's more, what can I take from this when I see a number? What can I learn from this? So rather than sort of saying, oh, nothing is real, everyone's sort of lying to me, I think it's more, well, let, I mean, no, that is true. That's a really, you know, I can understand that people go, and I think this is a common thing, right? Lots of people, when we mention this book, say, oh, yes, you know, lies, damn lies, statistics and all that. And that's probably only true because we are letting people do that. Mm. We are un- we we know that if we knew that how people did that, it'd be far harder for us to be tricked by it because we would know. You know, basically, if we if everybody knew or followed the rules in the back of the book about twenty percent increase, there'd be no the, the the sensationalism would go away because there'd be no point in doing it. Everyone would go, well, "This is stupid." Mm. You know, that is you know, why would that just completely ridiculous? No one would believe it. So I think that's one of the reasons why at the end of the book we gave this idea of a style guide. We gave some concrete, and it's a campaign that we're trying to do in terms of statistical history. If you're interested, you can sign up on how to read numbers. And it's this idea of this, if we have the media follows these simple rules about how to present numbers, then it's better informative for us. And what we want to do, it's not just journalists following them, it's we as the public want to demand people giving better numbers because that's what we're interested in. And we want it to be sort of demand-led thing. Mm. I uh, I will say this about the firstly, I um yeah, I, I worry too about the um the you know the the lies, damn lies and statistics thing, because I think I think that there's 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 a there's a counterpart to that which we quote in the book, which I think is really important, which is while it is easy to lie with statistics, it is even easier to lie without them. So that like if you at least it gives you if you're using statistics at least than uh, losing real statistics it, at least you have to it makes it a little bit harder to falsify things right you can't you can't you can't just make stuff up in the same way <laughs> that, you, that you could without them um that said like i i i do think as in, yeah and, and i completely agree with dave and this much such thing we, we would love you to do is go to howtoreadnumbers.com and get and sign up to our campaign to get more um uh media outlets to use a statistical style guide whether ours or their own you know something like that we'd love it if the bbc wrote a statistical style guide like 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 they have a you know a writing style guide um but i do think while i can't trust anything in the media any number all these numbers of lies is an overreaction i think that it would be good for readers to have a sort of an instinctive well they've given me a number what should i do now you know what 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 should i I trust but verify sort of aspect to thing you know like uh, to the thing if you if you see if you see a number just knowing what questions you should ask to interrogate that number have they given me a context is it uh absolutely you know if they give me the absolute risk as well as the relative risk is there um you know is there is there an effect size here do if they just say my you know there is a statistical statistically significant link between uh eating fish fingers and developing a problem with snoring or something you know the the, the um it, when they say there is a statistical link how big is that link have they told me and if they don't tell you those these things or if they don't tell you, you know, the sample size of the um the study or uh, you know the uh, perhaps the confidence interval around the um uh, around their estimates or anything like that it might be worth just saying well should be being a bit more willing to just not trust it or to go and find go and look a bit more into it somewhere else especially if you're going to base any decisions on it i think that that would be a good thing to take away 
That was Tom Chivers and David Chivers there talking to me about their new book, How to Read Numbers. The book's on sale now and it's published by Weidenfeld Mickelson. If you are interested in their advice on how to report statistics, do head to their site, howtoreadnumbers.com. We can find their statistical guide in full. Thanks for listening. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please do leave us a review. This podcast was brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine. In the April issue, which is on sale now, we dive into the missions that will take scientists to new frontiers. For the magazine, we've talked to the teams exploring mountains under the oceans. We've taken a close look at the project that will attempt to take an actual photo of an exoplanet. And we've explored how cosmic rays are allowing scientists to see deeper into ancient pyramids than ever before. Of course, there's much more inside and on our website, sciencefocus.com. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.